Good evening, 7 o'clock service. If I was not the pastor of this church, this would be the service I came to. And so I'm glad you came. And um, one thing we're going to be doing, I just want to give you a, a quick announcement. We're changing some of our service times. Because uh, with families with young children, it's been the 7 o'clock Saturday night has been difficult for them to make. And so we're moving this, this Saturday evening service back to 6.30, okay? So in two weeks, not next week. So don't come at 6.30 unless you'd like some time, a half hour of meditation before our service begins. Next week, or not, excuse me, two weeks from, from tonight, uh, we're going to be at 6.30. Here's the reason why. Our 1045 service has just been swamped. And we have people, who, you guys are inviting your friends to come to church with you. And uh, I met just in this past service, I met three brand new people, uh, brand, brand new families. And, I, and the story goes like this. Hey, it's really good to have you here. Uh, how did you hear about FBC? They go, well, so-and-so invited me. I know so-and-so and they come here. They're naming you because you're sharing the gospel and inviting people to come and experiencing what you're experiencing here at Fellowship Bible Church. So we want to keep that Keep that happening. And in order to do that, this is one of the services. Just look to your left and look to your right and you'll see open seats, right? If we could fill half these seats in this service, half the open seats in this service in, and in two other services that we do, we can continue to grow an additional 600 people here at Fellowship Bible Church. So we always want the open chair for people to be invited. And uh, so I just want to encourage you, stick out the, the, the 630 service. This is, this is the coolest service, okay? <laughs> so keep coming here and invite people to join with you here. And uh, on Sunday morning, we're moving the 9 o'clock to 9.15 because uh, it's just easier on a family when they think about going to church to leave the house at 9 and get here at 9.15 or a little bit before 9.15 so they're not late. And then the 11, the 10.45 service is going to be at the 11 o'clock. And we're sharpening our services to be an hour so that they'll end at the same time they do right now. So just to let you know, this is what's happening so that you can uh, prepare for it. And uh, if you normally go to the 10.45 you're going to learn to love us in here at the at the 6.30 or 7 o'clock service. So glad you're here tonight. We're starting a new series tonight. So if you're brand new here, you came at the perfect time because we're talking about the book of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. I'd invite you to open your Bible. And if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We have them for you in the back. And I have no problem right now if you want to go up and get one in the back. You're, I don't want to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out by name. But if you don't have a Bible... Uh, we want to give you a Bible. This is our gift to you. And if you have one at home, but you just forgot it tonight, leave it on your way out so we can give it to someone else. Glad you're here because the Bible is about real people. It's about a real God working in real places in the lives of people. And uh, the, the book of Second Corinthians was, was uh, a letter written to a real church in Corinth, which is in uh, southern Greece. And it, it was an eclectic city. Uh, it was a leading city in the Greek, uh, Greek and Roman Empire. There was a large population that consisted of slaves. And that's why, uh, I mean, you had that kind of environment because when, um, uh, when Julius Caesar rebuilt this city, he did it all with, with kind of transitioned people, freed slaves, went into Corinth. 
And Corinth did not have a good reputation. Corinth would be like Vegas. Okay? Now, I know you guys go, oh, some of you go, oh, Vegas. And you, your, your eyes get like that. Or New Orleans. You know, if you're talking about moral cities that just champion, you know, moral people, you don't talk about Vegas. What, what's their slogan? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. People check their morals before they go to Vegas. Not that I would know, okay? I just talk to people who have gone. And so there was this, there was this picture that when you wanted to talk about an immoral person, you would go, well, they're kind of Corinthian. That would be actually a descriptor of someone who didn't have morals. You wouldn't, it would not be a compliment if you were a woman and someone said, you're, you're like a Corinthian woman. You don't, you don't want that. You don't want that. It was even worse than being a Topeka woman. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's, It's just, it was an immoral place. And in that immoral place, the gospel took root. In Acts chapter 18, we, we come with, a, with the Apostle Paul who goes into that city and he was Jewish and he went to a synagogue. That's where the gospel always took root in, in his missionary journeys. And in his second missionary trip, he goes into Corinth and immediately he meets a, a couple. A couple where the wife's name was Priscilla and, and the husband's name was Aquila. And some of you may need be named Priscilla, but none of you are named Aquila. Okay, so if you're pregnant today, you have a a boy on the way, consider Aquila. It's an interesting name. But they met this couple and they had literally fled from their lives when um, when uh, the emperor in in Rome outlawed Jews. See, this wasn't just a World War Two kind of thing. Jews have been persecuted people. They've been suffering for a long time and they declared all Jews out of Rome. And and Priscilla and Aquila were one of them. They went to Corinth. And they resettled there. And they were tent makers. And guess who else was a tent maker? The Apostle Paul was a tent maker. And so he was a Jew. They were a Jew. He was a tent maker. They were a tent maker. They suffered. He suffered. We're going to find out about suffering in this. And the gospel takes root in this church. This church that, that some people, when Paul gave the gospel and said, salvation is not by works. It's not in obedience to the law. It's a free gift. It's all been done for us with Jesus on the cross. Jesus was the Messiah. He took our, our penalty on the cross. So we don't have to be good enough. We can't be good enough to earn God's favor. It's all by grace. And the gospel took root. But those who were entrenched in the Jewish beliefs hated this. It put them out of business. They couldn't manipulate people anymore. They couldn't say, if you don't come to the synagogue, you're going to hell. They didn't like that. If you don't give, you're not a righteous person. If you don't follow the law, you don't love God. And that's how they would manipulate. And if, you, if you're not careful, you'll find that in many churches today. They like to manipulate your performance and, and threaten you with hell if you don't perform up to a certain standard. When the gospel says, we're all headed to hell without Jesus. And although some of us can be better than others, all of us fall short of Jesus. And Jesus is the only one we're compared with. God doesn't compare you with a person on your left or on your right, person who makes more, who makes less, who uh, grew up in a great family, who grew up in a horrendous family. God does not compare you. He only compares each one of us to Jesus. And there's a part of me that goes, oh, thank you. I'm not compared with my neighbor. 
But then there's a part that goes, I can't be like Jesus. He's perfect. And that's why the gospel puts all of us on the same ground. The ground is level at the cross. We all need Jesus. This was the gospel that started the church in Corinth. Some Jews loved it. Other Jews hated it. And because they hated it, they hated Paul. And, and they started to set up rumors about Paul. Paul even had to leave the synagogue and move to a house next to uh, the synagogue to continue the gospel and was eventually left this city because the gospel was being challenged so much. He continued to where people would accept the gospel. And he wrote some letters back to it. One of them, one of the letters he wrote was 1 Corinthians. And it was to establish order and to call the Corinthian believers to love one another. That champion chapter in 1 Corinthians in chapter 13 that's read at almost every wedding. Love is, love is not, love is. The whole one is on love because people were fighting and bickering. And that's how you teach and that's the environment. You teach love when people aren't loving. That's what Paul did. Paul visited again and, um, and they started accusing him and he literally had to leave again. And he wrote a harsh letter to them to repent. Don't turn your back on the gospel. And the church in Corinth repented. And he sent 2 Corinthians back to them because there was still a little constituency who kept on throwing out. Look at the Apostle Paul, how much suffering he's gone through. He was lowered down in a basket to escape persecution. He was stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked. Certainly, God is out to get him if he has this much suffering. Certainly, he couldn't be an apostle. Certainly, certainly he couldn't speak with authority. And Paul talked about suffering. Suffering is one of the top words in the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to hear affliction. We're going to hear suffering tonight when we read the passage. They also had an issue with him relationally. They thought, Paul, if you really love us, you you planted the church here, you'd come more often because you don't care about us. Churches do that from time to time. And Paul says, everything I've done for you is because of love for you. My love for God and my love for you. I long for you. You are my children. The gospel was planted through my ministry here. Everything, my conscience will tell you that I was sincere in my love for you. And then they said, Paul is a false teacher. He's taking us away from the God of our heritage, the Jewish religion, everything our grandparents taught us. Paul is contradicting in the person and the work of Christ. And Paul says, I've been sincere with you. Jesus is who he is. Jesus rose from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, we wouldn't be worshiping him. Our lives need to be centered around Jesus. And it's this book that can transform our lives if we're open to it. The same Corinthian church that was read this letter, we get today. People who suffer. That's the whole backdrop for our series, is that this hardened clay is is what usually happens to some of us when, when we go through pain and affliction and loss and failure and when we suffer. We get hardened to God And we get hardened to love. And what Apostle Paul is saying is in this same hardened clay is the basic components of what God does when he reaches down to us who are hardened to him and breathes the water of his word into our lives and softens us and recreates us. 
It gives meaning to all of us when Paul would say, and he'll say later on, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. It'll mean something to us knowing this when Paul says we are vessels. We are instruments of his grace. Just as a potter forms clay and, and into an instrument that is useful rather than things that are hardened. This is purpose in Christ. So I'd like to invite you to read it with me. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. We're going to read 14 verses. And you may not be used to hearing the Bible read to you like this, but I just like you. That's why it's important for you just to follow along and read it along with me. Let me begin. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts, comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, with which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Now our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in this world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely toward you. For we are not writing you to you anything other then what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we boast of you. See, what Paul's going to tell us all and teach us all tonight is that we all have a purpose in Christ. None of, none of us have a purposeless, meaningless, pointless life. That when we have Jesus, we have purpose. And uh, when we lose our purpose and we suffer, when we feel we lose our purpose, suffering will rattle us and we won't be able to endure. So Paul is calling us all into enduring when, we're, when we suffer rather than having a, a pointless uh, perspective in suffering where it's meaningless and there's no value. And, and we, we, kind of, we kind of have suffering be a, an indicator that God loves us. Because many of us go through life thinking that if we suffer, God doesn't care about us. And God doesn't love us. That he's forgotten us. Others of us think that comfort and happiness are reasons why God exists. And it proves that he's in our lives when we're comfortable, when we're happy, 
when things are going well, when we get the job, when we get the promotion, when we get the girl, when we get whatever we want, because we think that God is here to serve us, to make all our dreams come true. And when suffering happens, he must not love us anymore. He must not care for us. But Paul is going to tell us that God has purpose in suffering. In the plan of God, suffering serves a purpose. That the human mind always needs purpose. And if you lose your perspective of purpose, you lose your sense of well-being. So some of you have lived it. You've lost a job and you've wondered, what on earth am I here for? And when you lose that perspective of making a contribution, of being significant, of doing something, you think that God doesn't care about you. It's easy to do that because we live in a culture that, that basically convinces us. And we live in a culture with Christianity that says, if you have Jesus, you'll get the job, you'll get the girl, you'll get the promotion, and you'll be healthy, and you'll be wealthy, and you'll be wise. And Paul is going to tell us, no, no, you may get cancer with Jesus. Your child may die with Jesus. You may lose your job with Jesus. Uh, You may um, never be accepted by the people you admire with Jesus. And God is very near. And God is working. And you're at the center of his plan. Paul is going to ask us to endure during suffering. Do not despise suffering. And if you read the scriptures, even outside of 2 Corinthians, you will find suffering and suffering and suffering. You will see a barren woman who cries out to God day and night to be pregnant. You will see uh, a father who loses his son, a father who's asked to give up his son. You will see, you don't see the American dream in the Old Testament. You see the reality of suffering in the Old Testament. You see the church enduring during suffering. You did not have a church that was under one nation, under God. It didn't demand its rights with its government. It had all its rights and all its privileges stripped from it. And many ran for their lives. But wherever they ran for their lives, they preached the gospel. Matter of fact, suffering was the reason the church was growing in the New Testament church and continues to be the reason the church grows inside and outside of the United States of America. You see, God uses suffering all things for a purpose. And we have to have a perspective that is not you-centric or me-centric, but Christ-centric. Because just in this passage, in this introductory words, Paul's going to say that suffering is used by God to invite us to grow deeper with Christ. God is going to call us into a deeper relationship. Look at verse 3. He says, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. God goes the distance with us. And relationships grow grow through suffering. They do. Think about your own life. If you got everything you wanted, do you know what your life would be about? It would be about you. 
It would be about me. Because there was a time in my life where I literally got everything I wanted. I grew up in a wealthy family. My parents rarely said no to me. I was very materialistic. And I had a lot of things. Things were important to me. And you know what life was about? Me. When my father went through bankruptcy and our family lost it all, do you know what I realized? I realized everything money could not buy. And although I grew up in a church, and I though, uh, though as a Christian, I thought Jesus was out to serve me. And therefore, I would wish, excuse me, pray to him, hoping that one day would be better than the next. When it didn't turn out to me, I had to really realize what is God all about. Rather than thinking he was against me, it actually jettisoned me to engage suffering in life, to understand that sometimes loss shows us a greater picture of Jesus. Sometimes losing the things that I think were most valuable showed me the things that were priceless in a relationship with God. God always calls us to grow deeper. If your perspective is God is only good when I get the job and he's only good when my marriage is good and my kids obey me, this is the extent of your walk with God. It's shallow. But when your floor drops out and you don't know what to do and you trust the hand of God and you believe in him and you follow him during that time, then your relationship grows deep. Talk to every Christian who's held on to the hand of God when they lost something of incredible value. And you will find deep people. Because God does that. He grows us deeper through loss. Secondly, Paul's going to tell us that, de- that when we go through suffering, it's an opportunity not only to be comforted by God, but to be comforting to others. He says he's the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all affliction, so that, look at verse 4, so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Empathy is a key word in the scriptures. And for those of you who have suffered, you don't realize it. You have no idea the power of two words in your life. Me too. You've gone through suffering and you go and comfort someone who suffered with that very same thing. When, when you had cancer and one of your friends just gets diagnosed with cancer and you go to them and you say, me too, I've been there. Do you know what just happens? A heart opens and the beauty of the gospel comes in because we feel in suffering that we're the only ones going through this, that God is against us, that God doesn't care for us, that people don't know how we feel. And when the God of all comfort comforts you and you comfort someone else and you just go me too. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at all those of you who I know have gone through suffering that I know about in this room right now. And I just look at all the people out in the world who are going through or will go through the very same thing you have gone through. I can't reach them, but you can with two words. Me too. That's how God works. He grows you deeper so that you can grow deeper with others. And then the third thing Paul says here is that it's an experience to share with Christ, to literally follow Jesus and to feel like Jesus felt when he suffered on earth. Because our hero, Jesus, suffered. 
We don't have this picture of Jesus here. He came in, had never had a bad day. And when he spoke, I mean, waters parted. And we do see him walking on water, which I can't do. And Peter tried to do and walked for a little bit and sunk. But our hero dies on a tree. Of a tree, which is like a cross. He was nailed to a cross and he dies. Our hero. But he defeated death. And, and he knows because he suffered in every affliction. Rejection. Depression. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, beatings. Lashings. Spitting upon. There's never an emotion we feel when we go through suffering that Jesus didn't feel when he walked this earth. So we follow in the footsteps of Jesus when we suffer. Do you want to know how Jesus lived? Suffer. None of us are to pray for suffering. That's not what I'm asking you to do. Lord, help me to suffer this week so I can follow Jesus. No, no. We will all suffer. We will all suffer. Realize God is working something here. And you might be in the very center of his plan. When you suffer. Suffering has a purpose. Now I've just said. This is what God does. And this isn't an exhaustive list. We go throughout the New Testament. I could preach a a 12 week series. Just on suffering. But this is what Paul gives us right now. There's just three good reasons. What, What does God do? And when you go through suffering. You say why do I have this? I will go don't know. But don't give up. Because this is what God does. Through suffering. So you don't have to know why you're suffering. Okay. But you can know what God is trying to do through suffering. So you have a purpose. You're never without purpose when you have Jesus. So Paul's going to show us this is what God does with suffering. This is what he did in his own life. Now, endure. See what he says? He said, endure, patiently endure in the same sufferings that we suffer. How do you do that? Well, Paul's going to give us three things, three tools for handling suffering. First one is hope. How to endure during suffering? When helplessness builds, you do it with hope. You do it with hope. Look at what Paul says. He says, we have put our hope on him. Verse 10 says, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul said it was God who delivered him from the point of death And it was God who will deliver him at death. Why does he say this? Because the simple truth that he puts it on God who raises the dead. The end of verse 9. Look at that. We put these things happen so that we wouldn't make us. So we wouldn't rely on ourselves. But on God who raises the dead. I love that line. Love that line. Because he goes the extreme distance. He goes to the point of. What are you worried about when you suffer? And I think the first answer we always give, we don't always say it. The first answer that comes to our mind is, I'll die. What are you so afraid about, about that? I'll die. What about cancer? I'll die. Yeah. What does Paul say? God raises from the dead. So at our worst fear of death, God is there. And will raise us. With Jesus, we'll never die. Okay, this shell will die if Jesus doesn't return. 
the nut will be in heaven, right? <laughs> I, you, you will go and your soul, the, the lasting part of you, will be with Jesus forever. Because when you die through Christ, you live. The most important part of you, therefore, is your soul. Feed your soul. And Paul's going to tell you what's, what's temporary, this earthly tent, it's temporary. But what's, what's eternal, spiritual part of you will last forever. So what's seen is temporary. What's unseen is eternal. He's going to teach us that. We have the hope that our worst nightmare, if it happens, hope. Do you realize the New Testament church banked on this? They banked on it because they were martyred for their faith. They did not recant the person of Jesus and they died for him. Some of you may die for Jesus, depending on how you suffer. And the reality is, is you have nothing to fear. There is no, the story's never over. Paul said he came to a point where he despaired even of life. Yes, you may come to a point in suffering where you go, I wish I was dead. But you put your hope in God because God raises the dead. It's that truth of the reality of eternal life through Jesus Christ that helps us suffer. If Jesus did not raise, was not raised from the dead, we have no power of God that worked through Jesus that's ours through Christ. So yes, we ought to fear like crazy when we go through suffering. If, there, if suffering is pointless, there is no God, you have nothing. You have nothing, no tools, no resources to engage suffering. You have Michael Bolton lyrics. That's all you've got. I pick on Michael Bolton a lot, and it marks my age, okay? But just not rainbows. There's no unicorns that come along and help us. There's no, you know, God watching us from a distance. Bette Midler's songs. There's nothing without Jesus. But with Jesus, we have hope. And so there Paul calls us pray. When you go through a time of hopelessness, pray. That's your practice. Specifically declare your hope in God. That's what Paul did. He despaired, but he prayed. Look at what he says here. You must also help us by prayer so that many may give thanks on your behalf. Verse 11 says, for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Prayer, when you hope, you pray. When you're in despair, you don't. When you're a person of faith, you pray. When you're a person of fear, you worry. That's just, it, it shows us for who we are when we go through suffering. The practice that is so valuable for us is to pray. God, I'm afraid. Sometimes I pray. It's just one word. Help. Amen. <laughs> That's what I do. Because I don't have the answers when it doesn't make sense, when I'm about to come unglued. That's because my hope is in God. I don't know how to love this person, but God, you do. I don't know what to do next, but God, you're in control. When we hope, we pray. Secondly, Paul's going to tell us that when, when stress overwhelms us, our lives need to be about simplicity. Look what he says. He says in... Um, he says uh, in verse, let's see, 12. He says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity. 
What is that simplicity? There's another translation of that Greek word, uh, which means with holiness, with a simple holiness. Who's holiness? Well, he's talking about the character of Jesus. You know, I go through this a lot when I counsel people going through suffering. So many times when we go through suffering, we start worrying about the things that were dreams of ours. When you have, when you're diagnosed with cancer, you think about, I may not be there for his graduation. I may not be there for his wedding. I may not be here to see grandkids. I may not be here to see my grandkids graduate from high school. And we have all those plans because we have this dream that's, that's threatened when things don't work out the way we want them to. Paul is saying we behaved with, with godliness, with simplicity before you. And, and when stress overwhelms you, you need to simplify your life. That's why when you go through suffering, I always tell people, you've got to start praying the Lord's Prayer because you need to start thinking, give us this day our daily bread. Not monthly, not weekly, not annual bread, but daily bread. And that goes all the way back to the Old Testament when God fed the children of Israel in the wilderness with manna every day. If they tried to store it, it would rot and have worms in it. He wanted them to be daily people. You want a daily walk with God? Suffer. He's all you have that day. I don't know about tomorrow. He's all I have today. And your relationship with God will be daily. We need to be daily followers of Jesus Christ. Suffering trains us to do that. And that's why we always call it simplify your life around the character of Jesus. Because living the character of Jesus works in every environment. Every environment. Suffering, success. Pain, prosperity. The character of Jesus always works in those environments. Being like Jesus works loving others not seeking revenge but trusting the justice of god with people not getting even and just pouring your life into unrelenting anger and rage but trusting and forgiving like jesus loved and forgave you see it's this simplicity where you, you move your life around the gospel and goodness of Christ. That's what we're called to do. And then the last one is this, that we uh, behaved in the world with simplicity, and look at that, that other phrase, and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely toward you. You see, the, the Corinthian church said, Paul's not sincere. He said he'd come, he didn't. And that's when we read in our L3 journal today, uh, he's saying that, uh, did, I, did I speak insincerely when my yes was yes and my no was no? That's how we're to do. We're to be people who have integrity about us. And suffering will shake us and reveal integrity or the lack of integrity. When suspicion arise, arose in Paul's life, he could always go back to, as far as I know, in the conscience of my mind, I have operated with you with sincerity. Here as a, as, a, as a pastoral staff team, we meet every Tuesday morning and we go through, are we sincere? We go through that concept so that the back room doesn't look different than the front room. That who I am on this stage 
isn't different than who am I when no one's looking. And it's really important with my family also that I'm sincere, that the dad who talks up on stage is the same dad who loves his sons at home. There's not two different Joes. He's not one way at home that he isn't on stage. And, and so our, we call it that, that you may not know everything about me, but if you did, you wouldn't be shocked. You wouldn't be freaked out. Because I don't live a life that has a bunch of secrets. Now, do I have quirks? Yes! You know, first service, my kids were laughing. They know things about me you don't know. You know, sometimes my son will go, Dad, it's a rare pastor who would say that, you know. But it's not stuff that would go, wow, he doesn't love Jesus. He doesn't love me. They're quirky things, but they're not game changers. Paul operated with an open deck. Everybody saw him, and we do too. So that when someone accuses you, you can stand before God and say, I know that I know that that's not true. And there's something about how that emboldens you in public when you know privately in the eyes of God and in the conscience of your mind and how you've conducted your life that you have no regrets. None of us are perfect, but we're just talking about nothing that would freak people out if they found out about you. Paul said, we operated with you with a godly sincerity. So when we told you this is who we are, this is who we I'm not robbing from the church when I ask for this offering to go back to Jerusalem. There's no back room here where we're one for me, one for the church, kind of counting the offering. It's sincere and it has integrity. And we have all structures so that we'd be a sincere church like Paul was. Because the truth is, is that a sincere life reflects the grace of God. The truth about me and the truth about you is that we all need grace. We're not perfect people. And we can hide behind being critical or negative or judgmental or harsh or self-righteous. But the gospel demands integrity. All of us need Jesus. We all fall short of the glory of God. So the practice is sincerity. Sincerity with wisdom and with grace. See, with insincerity, insincere people do not endure accusation. That's why you've seen very publicly someone not like them to be called on the carpet. Guy like Lance Armstrong. You know, don't tell me I doped. Oprah got it out of him. He doped. All those years of insincerity came out because here's the reality. The truth always wins. We can cover it. We can mask it. You can, you can fool me, but you cannot fool the giver and the author of truth. He will find out. And, and if he loves you, the world will find out. Because when the truth comes out, it's my prayer your heart would be humbled to change from living the lie to living the truth. It's the greatest thing to walk in the truth with wisdom and with grace. How do we endure sufferings, accusations, stress, helplessness? With hope, with simplicity, with sincerity. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us, um, you've given us a grid for how to endure under suffering, whether that suffering is health or accusation or persecution. 
You've given us the grid. And now, Holy Spirit, teach us what this is like to live. I mean, really live and depend on the hope that you have for us. To live with the simplicity of the character of Jesus in our life. That our lives just, it's not about who we want to be, what we're trying to prove with our lives. We just look like Jesus. Simple. And, and that we'd be sincere. That who we are in private would be the same as the person we project in public. So that there would be no confusion and the gospel can move through our lives. For it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.